And I hope that uh, folks who are online, you can hear me. Just um, uh, raise your hand or give me a sign in the chat that you can hear me right now. And perfect, thank you, appreciate it. Excellent. All right, so welcome to this second talk on marriage. Can you hear me now? Yeah. Uh, we are going to now cover in this talk what I call the good and the best. Um, by way of, uh, but before we do that, I'm going to start with a prayer as we usually do, then give you a little bit of a summary of what we talked about last time, and then dive straight into it. So, um, reminder, we have four talks. This is talk number two which addresses, again, the natural part of marriage. And then talk number three and four will focus more on the sacramental side of marriage. What does the sacrament add to a marriage? So with that, I would like you to all please stand up. In the name of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Oh my God, I offer thee all my actions of this day for the intentions and for the glory of the sacred heart of Jesus. I desire to sanctify every beat of my heart, my every thought, my simplest works, by unifying them to its infinite merit. And I wish to make reparation for my sins by casting them into the furnace of its merciful love. Oh my God, I ask of thee for myself and for those whom I hold dear, the grace to fulfill perfectly thy holy will, to accept for love of thee the joys and sorrows of this passing life, so that we may one day be united together in heaven for all eternity. Amen. Heavenly Father, you have given us a model of life in the holy family of Nazareth. Help us, O loving Father, to make our family another Nazareth where love, peace, and joy reign. May it be deeply contemplative, intensely Eucharistic, and vibrant with joy. Help us to stay together in joy and sorrow through family prayer. Teach us to see Jesus in the members of our family, especially in their distressing disguise. May the Eucharistic heart of Jesus make our hearts meek and humble like his, and help us to carry out our family duties in a holy way. May we love one another as God loves each one of us more and more each day and forgive each other's faults as you forgive our sins. Help us, O loving Father, to take whatever you give and to give whatever you take with a big smile. Help us, O Holy Father, to make our families one heart, full of love in the heart of Jesus through Mary. Immaculate heart of Mary, cause of our joy, pray for us. Saint Joseph, pray for us. Holy Garden Angels, be always with us. Guide and protect us. Amen. Please be seated. Okay. Um, conventional marriage. I'm kind of a little distracted because I'm not really sure this is doing what it's supposed to do, but we're going to go with it. Uh, today we're going to talk about, we're going to start talking about conventional marriage. And we're going to talk about where do we go wrong. 
and then we'll dive into the qualities of an exceptional marriage, then describe what these exceptional marriages are all about and give a few examples and go through Q&A. So for those of you who are sort of joining us here for the first time, we're actually queuing off this book called Exceptional 7%, The Nine Secrets of the World's Happiest Couples. And um, I, I picked up this book some years back and I started reading it and I noticed that uh, if what really struck me was that if I wanted to define what a sacrament was in layman's term without using any religious language, I would do it the way it was done in this book. I was thoroughly impressed. And then I was really impressed with the research and the quality and the rigor of the writing. And it ends up being that the author, whose name is Gregory Popkak, if I'm not mistaken, is actually a, a thoroughly Catholic author. I didn't know that when I picked up the book. So it's really interesting. So one thing that is offered in this book, so which I found uh, enlightening, was this sort of a map of marriages going from extremely low to extremely high on the ranking of what he calls identity strength and marital satisfaction. And like I told you last time, I was very intrigued by the fact that he links identity strength to marital satisfaction. What is identity strength? Just a sense of who you are and how well you realize who you are. And then we discussed last time the impoverished ma marriage, which is essentially a marriage of people who come from difficult backgrounds. And I'll reiterate the point I made last time. This is not about uh, pointing fingers. This is not about, uh, please join us over here. Don't, don't, be, don't be strangers to the family. Everybody, get in there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. How, how do you know, by the way, how do you know when you are actually in front of a Catholic congregation? versus a Protestant congregation. Catholic congregation, everybody's in the back. Like one foot out of the door. It's like, no, just, yeah, let me feel your presence. That's helpful. All right. So everybody's trying to do the best they can. Nevertheless, they can end up in what he calls impoverished marriages, which come in a variety of flavors that we saw last time. And what we're going to do today is look at the two other sections, the conventional marriage and the exceptional uh, marriage, and talk more about those. All right. Uh, if you're interested in the first talk, by the way, oh, no, bear with me. That's coming up after. So identity strength and marital satisfaction, like we said, there were these, this, this um, continuum, if you will, from extremely low to extremely high. And what we did, we talked about impoverished, conventional, and exceptional. I'm repeating myself, but I think it's a good thing to repeat because those are not concepts that are sort of uh, easy to remember. The impoverished marriage is called impoverished because it is low on the intimacy, satisfaction, and longevity. Those are marriages that don't last. The intimacy is extremely low, and they are very unhappy people. The conventional marriage is about people trying to find their place in the world. Those are couples who are connected to communities and then they're trying to determine who they are in the context of that community. 
this is the bulk of most marriages out there. And then exceptional marriages build around these four things. Marital imperative, and this is the, there's one word I want you to remember, one sentence I want you to remember is marital imperative. And I'm gonna phrase it to you in very stark terms. There is no happiness in marriage without the marital imperative. Okay? So this is really a key principle and idea. Personal competence, intimacy and actualization. And today I'm gonna to cover all those. The one thing also I wanted to uh, bring to your attention, which is I mentioned that last week. Marriage is a natural institution. So in theology, we recognize the natural law and the ecclesial law. In the Catholic Church, that's how we think about it. The natural law is the law instituted by God. And it is higher than the ecclesial law, which is the law of the church. Both are important, but one is, in a sense, more important and more universal. Marriage falls under the universal law, the law, the natural law, the law instituted by God. Therefore, God wills for all married people to be happy. Happiness in marriage is not a Catholic imperative. You could be Buddhist, you could be atheist, you could be believer, you could be unbeliever, you can be very happy in marriage. Which, like I said last time, brings the question of, okay, what does the sacrament of marriage brings above that? If, indeed, you can be happy without religion, what do you need religion for? And we're going to cover that in the next two talks. Okay. Now, where do you find part one? You can go to my, to my website, which is corbono.com. You can see it written out here in big, Q-R-B-O-N-O.com. And um, you will find all the different podcasts. I'm using quote because I really push the limit of what a podcast is. Some of those talks can be up to three hours. I don't know if it really qualifies as a podcast. But those were all the Bible studies that I've done, which were sort of presented here. And then at the very bottom, as you can see, there are two new podcasts that I started. The first one is effectively on marriage, and the other one is on Q&A. Incidentally, if you have questions that I can get to, or if you want to ask them more in a private setting, simply write to question at corbono.com. And I typically um, monitor this uh, email address, and I either... Uh, answer straight up, or I will take it and make it part of this podcast on Q&A. All right. And lastly, here is the um, uh, QRL for Corbono, and then you can find also the stock on YouTube now. Very well. So now let's talk about conventional marriage. Like I said, conventional marriage is most, most likely the kind of marriage you've seen around you, the kind of marriage you're familiar with. And it comes in two flavors, storybook and star marriage. So what does, you know, what are the characteristics of a conventional marriage? And you'll have to bear with me because I'm going to be shuffling sometimes through my notes. Uh, there's a lot of notes too that I want to be aware of. Okay. The first thing you will notice about a conventional marriage is that both husband and wives 
are pretty sure about their ability to take care of themselves. That is very different from the shipwreck marriage, where either husband or wives or both see the world as this uh, mess of despair and they are unable to really function properly, or they might be able, one of them might be able to take care of themselves as we see, we've seen it in the shipwreck marriage. The husband is, the wife is not. In a conventional marriage, you end up with a couple where both of them have some level of confidence they can take care of themselves. The second thing that you would notice is that um, they, they can be employed. That's essentially what we're basically saying. If they need to find a job, they can find a job. This, and then they are, um, they found personally meaningful roles in society, things that satisfy them. So now the difference, again, with a shipwrecked marriage is that they are connected to reality. They're not running away from it. So for instance, the, in a conventional uh, marriage, the husband might be, say, a physician, a doctor, or a plumber, an electrician, someone who finds enjoyment, some level of enjoyment in the work that he does. Um, the wife can also be working. She can be a doctor, a nurse, she can be a judge, whatever the case may be, but she's finding enjoyment what she's doing, or she might choose to stay home and she's finding enjoyment in dealing with the things of the house. The third thing about conventional marriage is that they typically end up being connected to some community. So you notice the, the trend here is connectedness. They are, they, they, they are connected to a job in which they can find satisfaction. They are connected to a community to which they belong whatever the community may be. And, <clears throat> sorry, wrong picture. They are able to deal with the arguments that, you know, tend to occur between husband and wives. Um, and they have found at least some mechanism to deal with those arguments, even if it's not completely satisfactory. So, I hope I'm starting to paint a picture that you can sort of uh, understand. And for those who were with us last week, you can start to see the difference between what you see here and in the case of the shipwrecked marriage, where things are really falling apart every day of the week. Right? Very well. Now, this is also a marriage truly founded on love. A conventional marriage is a marriage founded on love. It is warm and it is fruitful. So uh, it has some very, very good qualities. However, what you might see is that the man and the woman are a little bit in their own spheres. And this is a little uh, wink to this book called Men Are From Mars and Women Are From Venus. Not that I particularly support that book. Uh, 
like I told you before, I'm not a psychologist, but I've read enough to kind of see what fits and what doesn't with the way the church thinks about things. And I am not in favor of books that are very deterministic, that seems to be taking away the free will, right? But it sort of illustrates a point that is when the couple is married, the man has his sphere, the woman has her sphere, and the two spheres are apart, which then risks creating what we call shallow intimacy. Not only that, but because of the pull of these interests, the man and the woman risk to be literally pulled apart. Okay? And so the conversation at home ends up being things of the following nature. Uh, I've seen Jim today. Oh, how is he doing? He's doing well. How are the kids? The kids have been doing well. Um, and what did you do? Oh, what, we just played golf. Oh, and the wife. Uh, I've actually taken the kids to school. Oh, what did you do there? Well, we've done this and then any other. Oh, it's sort of a, like um, exchange of information. But exchange of information doesn't create intimacy. All right? Now, if you're someone who grew up in a family like this one, a conventional family, guess what? That is the model before you. That is the thing that you recognize as being a marriage, and that is the thing that you will, one way or the other, pursue. Now, we all have said, every one of us have said, when I grow up, I will not do X because my parents are doing X. And then we grow up and we find ourselves doing precisely what our parents did. Why? Because change is extremely difficult. Right? To change requires very consistent and deliberate effort. And it doesn't happen simply because we wish it so. Why am I bringing this up? Well, because most of us are going to carry forward the habits and behaviors we've seen in our families of origin. And <clears throat> we kind of perpetuate these behaviors and habits, not because we want to, but because that's the only thing we've learned. So unless we go back to this notion of marital imperative and we do some hard work on ourselves, change will not occur. All right. I'm going to talk about that a little bit later more. Now, these conventional marriages, like I said, tend to be connected to a community, which is a good thing. It is actually a very good thing that they're connected to a community. Why? Because when they're connected to a community, it allows both husband and wife to, be, to sharpen their identity how they compare themselves to others. And that comparison is not necessarily a bad thing. It allows them to say, well, we're not like so-and-so, or we're like so-and-so, or did you see so-and-so, how they're doing? I wish we could do the same thing. This then provides them with an environment in which they can seek to improve. Without that community, they really have nothing to compare themselves to and therefore, they have 
no, um, if you will, benchmark or North Pole to guide them in order to become better. Like I can, I can give you as an example, the thing that happened to my wife and I when our kids were little. Let's just say that um, our family is not the quiet type. And certainly not at church. As my kids were growing up, I spent most of my time outside with at least one or two of them locked into their car seats during mass. There was this family whom we knew, and they had these kids who were angelic. I literally mean angelic. I mean, they would sit in one spot at the beginning of mass, and by the end of mass, they have not moved an inch. I used to think they were all on drugs. Very cynical thought of my, on my part, but I had to justify myself somehow. Because I just could not understand that he could do that. So obviously, that was a strong pull for us, at which we failed miserably. Never been able to do it any better until the kids were older. Um, I'm sure in your circles, you know of other families who you looked up to. And that's good, because it gives you a direction, something to look up to, and something to try to emulate, or at least learn from. So that's the first, the first thing. They have this identity they compare each other yeah, they compare to each other which is good the thing though is that he might have his group so for instance he may be really attached to the church he may be a deacon in the church and she might like to play golf and again while these things allow each one of them to discover who they are and how to improve they tend to do it separately you understand they tend to do it separately. That kind of separation trickles down to the children when the children are a little older. And so you end up in situations where you have families where there is no real attempt at growing in intimacy. The intimacy between children comes about through conflict. They're going to tease each other. They are going to press each other's buttons. They are going to tell each other what to do and what not to do, that sort of thing. But that is pulling them together because they learn to address conflict among each other, and that builds them up. So, again, from my family, I can tell you that as my kids start to grow up, obviously, we, so we, my wife and I had seven children in nine years. That made them a pack, right? Very close-knit pack. And eventually, as they started to grow up, we started to notice that the things they've learned from us, especially the older kids, they started to apply onto the younger ones. So for instance, my youngest, uh, Maita Tessa, ended up with six moms and two dads, because everybody had to tell her what to do. But what you notice is that there is this sort of a strong identity that is built up where they're all discovering values that they are adhering to, making them their own, and discussing them among each other. So the fact that a father and a mother are doing their own thing is a good, it's good because they are really searching who they are 
but the fact that they're doing it separately means that this shallow intimacy trickles down to the entire family. So, this is a family, sorry, I need to do one more thing. Speaking of my daughter, uh, she may be actually reacting to what I just said. So I need to, how do I actually manage this? Okay, here we go. That's fine, I just closed it. Anthony, seriously? Seriously? I thought I shut it off. Tessa, stop. This is so annoying. <clears throat> okay. So there is identity. There is a value. Values that are being shared between the couple, which is wonderful. And then there is the idea of measuring up. Oh, so instead of doing something, we want to do the same thing. Now that measuring up can be, as you know, very bad if uh, this family got the newest car, we need to get the newest car. If we become a materialistic, oriented toward possession, then it's not a good thing. But it's really oriented toward values and identity, and you're trying to improve as the people around you are improving. That is a great guardrail to keep these families to function. So this brings us to the storybook marriage. The storybook marriage is your traditional marriage. The one that most likely most of you here are familiar with. They tend to be married in, within some religious context. Here I chose to represent a Catholic wedding, but it could be a Muslim wedding, a Buddhist wedding, any wedding of people who are committed to some form of belief that they adhere to and then they are integrated in. It's a um, marriage that typically is open to traditional roles for husbands and wives. The wife in a storybook marriage is one who is happy to take on a traditional role, but she's certainly not weak, right? And she has no problem pushing her husband when she determines that he needs to be pushed, okay? The husband, on the other hand, is, is well, on the, well, on the one hand, the husband is kind of um, flummoxed by being pushed like so by his wife, yet at the same time, he doesn't mind being mothered by her. So it's a functional relationship, but that includes some dysfunction with it. In other words, he is happy when she is helping him move forward or take on something, but she's catering to his insecurities instead of helping him face them. They have very traditional roles, but they're, they're permeable. The wife might get involved in the financials of the house, but at the end of the day, the husband makes the decision. And the husband might get involved in the running of the house, but at the end of the day, the wife makes the decision. Again, I, I want to reiterate, this is a functional family. 
This is a functional build on love. This is a family where father and mother are doing the best they can to rear this family and have everybody grow. But like I said, they both have their own poles and those poles are very strong and the strengths of these poles can pull them apart. So they end up being in the best case as they grow older, they live like brothers and sisters. Okay. Because that intimacy never developed in the first place. So it's a marriage of, um, like I said, it's a functional marriage. It's a marriage built about functions, getting stuff done and getting them done properly. And the challenge is for both husband and wife to cross that divide and go and become particularly interested in each other's worlds. So it's for the husband to genuinely become interested in whatever interests his wife and for the wife to be genuinely interested in whatever interests her husband. Um, the thing is, it's very good, like I said earlier, for these people to be connected to a community because that community offers them guardrails and help them really literally stay together. The star marriage is also a conventional marriage, but it tends to function more on the liberal side. So this is a marriage where it will be more built on ideas like feminism and uh, tending to be more, uh, you know, following liberal ideas. The, in, in star marriage, it's a conventional marriage again, but in star marriage, the professional path is extremely important to both uh, spouses. Right? And as a result, their homes sometimes when they meet, it might look like two monologues crossing each other. Because he is going to talk about what he's doing at work and all the projects and all the people. And she's going to talk about what she's doing at work and all the projects and all the people. That is not a dialogue. Right? They are very good, very good at keeping scores. Who took the, who took the, um, the garbage out? who changed the diapers, who fixed the light. Everything needs to be divided down the middle, 50-50. <laughs> and as a result, children is a problem because the children simply do not fit neatly into a 50-50 division, no matter how hard we try. So for these couples, there is a real challenge in dealing with children. Nevertheless, again, these are couples who have marriages built on love. These are couples who care for each other and who want the best. So what are the risks and dangers of a conventional marriage in its, in its two flavor, whether it's storybook or star? Domestic scorekeeping, like I just said, getting themselves 
lost into the sort of a vicious circle where I will be more loving, more kind, more generous, more available if you're more loving, more kind, more generous, more available. That's a sort of a corollary of that scorekeeping, right? And then lost identity. They are so focused on what they do that they lose who they are. They are focused on, so for instance, in the storybook marriage, the husband may be focused on his career, on his work, on the things he brings to the family. And the wife may be focused on the kids, on schooling, on all the activities with the other moms, that when all that is set aside, they don't know who they are. They, they, they've lost track of who they are. And many people sometimes have these concerns and fears about being lost in marriage. That marriage is going to take over and they're going to get, they, they will be lost in it. They, there will be nothing left of them. And then fears, these fears say more about their own weaknesses than they do about the potential oppressive nature of the institution of marriage or the spouses. Why? Because a true strong identity can never be lost. A true strong identity. <coughs> most of my uh, Lebanese fellow would know can never be lost. So, overall, conventional marriages tend to be moderately stable, moderately satisfactory. Recommendations for conventional couples. Solidify your value system. Find out who you are and what you want. Come out of your own world. If you're going to get stuck into your own world and not be able to come out of it and meet the other where they are and get interested into their world, there is no way for you to get out, come out of this. So for those of you who are not even married, solidify your value system applies perfectly. Who are you? Who do you want to be as an individual? It is interesting that we live in a world where um, you're taught to work on your resume. You're taught to present what you do, but you're never taught to find out who you are. In fact, that bent is so strong that when people meet each other here, what do we ask each other? What do you do? Instead of who you are. And what you do is very important. There's no doubt about that. No, no one would question the importance of what we do. It's just that it's not who we are. The other one is come out of your own world. You see, uh, St. Thomas Aquinas 
would speak of intelligence in two ways. One, intelligence is the ability of the mind to align itself with the data. To align yourself with reality, that is intelligence. And the other way, the second interesting definition of intelligence is your capacity to be interested. The width and breadth of your intelligence is measured by your capacity to be interested. So, how interested are you with the people around you? How interested are you to truly pay attention to what the people around you are interested in? Refine your communication skills. There is a lot more to this than what you might think there is. This is not about how you speak at in the office. It's not about how you present yourself. What is very interesting to me is whenever people speak of communication, I would say that they would put 90% of the weight on talking and 10% of the weight on listening. But the truth of the matter is that it should be reversed. Your communication skills are really, truly an indication of how well you listen, not how well you talk. And to listen isn't, doesn't simply mean you understand the intellectual worlds being pronounced. You understand the context, the reason, the why, and how someone feels when they're saying what they're saying. It's paying attention to the whole person. All right, so impediment to happiness. Why are all these couples not happy? Can we distill it down to something that helps us understand what is it that they're missing? And the way to look at it is this. Every one of us loves to have a degree or study or love to have some skill that they own, right? I'm not one to think personally that everybody has to go to university. I don't think so. A lot of people can be very successful without going to university. But what is, what, what, if you think about what we do, you can have a degree, you can have a profession, you can be a very successful profession. You can have education. You can know how to read and write and know a lot of books. You can um, have money, lots of it. You can be very savvy about your diet, what you eat and what you don't. Uh, you can have a developed spirituality. You can be very good at exercising and in sports. Uh, you can have promotions at your work. You can have fame. You can be known. Uh, you can be the kind of person who is able to... Um, develop the kind of spirituality that allow people around you to be connected to you. You can have a great prayer life and you can love whining and dining. You can do all those things. 
but none of that is going to make you happy. None of that will make you happy. Now the pull today is on all of those things. Like you look around, you look at social media, you look at everything around you, and it's either about your studies or your career or your advancement or your health or your exercise regimen or your going out or how famous you are or... But it's not gonna make you happy. Let's see why. Here's you as the center of your own solar system. And here's all these things, which are yours. You, you get it? Those are yours. You do all those things and they're yours. And there is nothing wrong with that picture. I want you to understand that clearly. This is not Sauron and his tower, right? This is good. Having a job and having a career, being educated or, you know, being able to have a, a promotion and eating healthy and all those things are good. But why are they an impediment to happiness? See, that's why it's tricky. If I were to show you drugs and murders and people in jail and all, you would understand. Well, yeah, you stop doing these things. But those are good things. So why are good things impediment to happiness? Well, let's look at it this way. Here, here, here is Mr. Solar System. And here comes Miss Solar System. And each one of them have their own satellites and their own life and are doing the thing they want to do. One of those things right here is getting married. See that? So getting married is one of the planets of the solar system. Just added to the rest of the activities. So both of them are result revolving around themselves and both of them have their own center of being, being themselves, and what they do. And then they decide to get married, so what do they do? They kind of jig these things slightly and then kind of move to sort of make them fit. You see that? So their careers, they'll figure out a way to sort of make their careers work, their families work, Christmas at my parents, New Year's at yours that sort of thing. They may even have their friends perhaps come together. But by and large, a lot of those spheres remain their own. That is a signature for shipwreck and conventional marriage. That's how they're built. Why? Well, because both husband and wives don't know who they are. It starts right there. Therefore, they haven't really sat down, taken stock of all those things, asking themselves this question, how are all those things help me be who I want to be? They fell into it in strides because the society told them to do that. 
not because they made a conscientious decision to do that. So what must happen? How is that different when you start having a marital imperative? Well, a marital imperative starts from the idea that the two will become one. Now, we all say that in one form, shape, or another in marriage, regardless of what the kind of ceremony you're going through, that idea of the two becoming one is there. But it's really never truly acted upon. Like we don't follow through with the idea of two becoming one. What does it mean when we say two become one? It means that we're going to develop positive character traits, moral virtues, spiritual growth. And that these three things together are going to realize who we are. So here's the first takeaway. Exceptional couples consider their marriage to be their best hope for becoming the people they want to be at the end of their lives. Exceptional couples consider their marriage to be their best hope for becoming the people they want to be at the end of their lives. It's a transformational journey about becoming who you're supposed to be. That's what marriage is. It's not one more satellite you add to the rest of the qualifications and activities you do. It becomes the center of your life. Their tendency to view their marriage as a partnership in destiny, partnership in destiny accounts in no small way for the uncommon longevity and fulfillment these couples exhibit. Okay, still very abstract, but it starts to give you a little bit of an idea, right? That there are these things, positive character traits, moral virtues and spiritual growth, that are connected to the marital imperative of the couple and that these couples don't think of their marriage as a sort of one more thing they do, but they think of it as their best hope to become who they want to be. All right. Now, Interestingly enough, if you look, if you, if you sort of, again, survey the field, um, the secular field, you will see that there are conversations about virtues and character strength. So this is taken from positivepsychology.com. It's a website that published papers in psychology. And I'm not claiming this is the best or only way to do that. I'm just illustrating that outside of the religious sphere, there is work being done on virtues and traits. And the way they kind of define that, as you can see, it is that the virtues are these. What happened to my glasses? Oh, here they are. Sorry. The virtues are like things like wisdom, courage, humanity, transcendence, justice, moderation. Again, that's one example of this categorization. And the character traits are 
creativity, curiosity, judgment, love of learning, perspective, bravery, persistence, honesty, zeal, etc., etc. Forgiveness, modesty, prudence, self-control. Okay. The point I want to bring to your attention is this. For us, character traits are subclassification of virtues. There's really no fundamental distinction between a character trait and a virtue, right? Or vice. So just a subclassification. As a result, I'm going to simplify things a little bit for you. And this character trait becomes moral virtues. And now we have the customary two pillars that we've always talked about. In a Catholic setting, your spiritual growth is your understanding of the theology of the church, the liturgy, and the sacraments, and your participation in them, your life of prayer. And the moral virtues are the fruits of those. How you grow in your moral virtues is the fruit of your prayer. And this is St. Teresa of Avila, St. John of the Cross. How do I know that my prayer is fruitful? They would always ask them this question. Those are two masters in the mystical life. And the answer was always the same, virtues. The virtues are the fruit of your prayer life. Okay. Now, now that we've simplified it thus, let's look at it a little bit more. The woman, before marriage, has to develop a moral and spiritual imperative about herself. Who does she want to be the day she dies? If this was her eulogy and her husband stepped up and spoke about her, what does she want him to say about her? The husband, likewise. And those are the sort of things you develop before marriage. You develop as an individual, as an individual. Who do you want to be known as? When people, I'm sorry? Mute my computer? What? No, I can't mute it, sweetie, because then I cannot hear me. My what? Hold on. Hey, guys, can you still hear me? Or did I mute you out? See, there's no sound. Oh, he has no sound. Okay, so that doesn't work on him. Okay, can you guys hear me? Here we go. Yeah, I cannot mute it this way. All right. Sorry about that, guys. So, you have a moral and spiritual imperative for the woman, and there is a moral and spiritual imperative for the man. Who do you want to be? So, I'll give you a, a simple example. It's not simple, but an example a lot of you here would know about. If I were to ask you, what do you think the moral imperative of Mary, the mother of God, is? What would you say? Humility. That's a character trait or a virtue. That's not a moral imperative. Yes. 
That's it, what she said herself. Thank you, to be a servant of God. Behold, I am the handmaiden of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to thy word. That is her moral imperative. And she then be, she was then known and is known as the mother of God. What is the imperative, the moral imperative of St. Joseph? From the scriptures. Yes, he's the, he's the father and protector of the Holy Family, but his moral imperative was, and he did as the angel told him. You see that? In a corporate setting, for those of you who work in corporate, you know that as a mission statement. We have corporations developing these imperatives, but for some reason, we don't think that we should. We're content to be what we don't want to be, or we're content to be unknown to ourselves. And we don't have that drive to say, how do I become what I want to be? Then, from these two imperatives together, a marital imperative emerges, whose purpose it is to help them become who they want to be. So I'll go through my, some examples. By the way, these things do not require a PhD in anything. These things are not about educated or super educated people. They're not. These, these things are about anyone who wants to know who they are. And um, incidentally, <clears throat> uh, maybe that's the time to put the plug for this book. We, my wife and I, uh, found about nine copies of the book which we would want to uh, first uh, offer to those of you who are married. In the book, he has questionnaires and methods to help you respond to these questions and develop a, a, an imperative, both as an individual and as a married couple. Right? So if you are interested in those books, they're out here. I think that they're all used because um, the publishers stopped publishing the book for whatever reason, but they're out here and then uh, they, they basically go for 10 bucks and we're not making money on those, just let you know. So the point being that to develop those imperatives, you do not need to have a super education. You just need to be able to sit down and have some thoughtful process about who you want people to know you as. So here's an example for the woman to be a woman of faith that radiates Christ's charity around me. So the white is the spiritual imperative and the yellow is the moral imperative. To be a woman of faith radiates Christ's charity around me. That's who she wants to be. That's her desire that at the end of her life, if somebody were to say, do eulogy about her, they would say she was a woman of faith who radiated Christ's charity around her. The man, to be a man of my word who loves God. To be a man of my word. So he wants to be known 
as someone whose word is important and someone who loves God. And then these two, when they come together, you can get something like to be a trustworthy couple in the service of God and men. That becomes now this couple's imperative. Here's another example. To be a peaceful, strong woman who is available, who is as available as she is prayerful. And um, again, there is a moral side, and then there is a spiritual side. To be a generous man who loves God and family. And then together, to be a strong and peaceful family, loving God and country. One more example, to be a daughter of the church, a faithful wife and a generous mother. To be a kind man, patient with God, others and myself. And then together, to be a family of faith, of generosity and patience. Now, whether you agree with these or not, whether those would be what you want to do or not, is fair game. But the point is, do you have a sense of self like what you see here. And if you don't, why not? All right. Now, let's go back to this. Suppose we replace ourselves with the moral and spiritual imperative that we both have. What happens then? What happens is the two are going to merge into a marital imperative. That marital imperative is going to be nourished by the moral and spiritual imperative of the husband and wife. And then all these other circles move out, move back, and take on the right size. What does that mean? It means that whether it's career, promotions, education, culture, fame, spirituality, prayer, whether it is diet, health, connectedness to others, all those things are there to serve this marital imperative. So your choice is either to consider marriage as one more bubble in a set of things that you do, or to consider marriage as the fundamental structure of your entire life and look at every activity you do and ask yourself this question, is that activity serving our marital imperative or not? If it isn't, you stop it. If it is, you continue it. What are the fruits of a marital imperative? Eight, exceptional fidelity, loving, service, rapport, negotiation, gratitude, joy, and sexuality. Let's go through those. Exceptional fidelity. To exceptional couples, fidelity is broader than sexual monogamy. It means forsaking all others. 
friends, family of origin, commitments, career opportunities, and community involvements. All those are forsaken for the sake of fidelity. If they do not serve to increase either the physical and mental health of each spouse or the intimacy of the marriage, they are let go of. A husband in these relationships will not think about going and spending time with the buddies playing golf if that activity is taking him away from his wife. A wife will not think about going and spending time with her friends if that is taking her away from her husband. I did that See how me. different that is? See the level of commitment it requires? This is not a marriage of convenience. This is not a marriage that comes in and finds its place and leaves everything the same. It doesn't work that way. Spouses in exceptional marriages don't give up anything that is truly important. They just don't waste time pursuing anything that isn't. Exceptional loving. Exceptional couples view love as a calling. They perform acts of love to their spouse every day. Whether or not they feel like it, whether or not their spouse deserves it. You don't love because somebody deserves it. Why? Because you are not deserving of love, ever. No one is. You perform acts of love because you that's who you choose to be. That's how you want to be known when you die. That man loved his wife. That woman loved her husband. Actively loving helps them feel in love. Loving behavior fuels loving emotions. Exceptional couples know this and practice it. You feel in the funk, you feel down, you feel depressed, you feel unhappy, get up and do something for your spouse. Doesn't have to be big. Really. Make the bed, clean the bathroom, make some coffee, do something. Exceptional. Oh, sorry. Just a second. I thought that when I mute somebody, I can mute everyone. Here, let me mute again. There we go. Exceptional service. Exceptional couples value daily mutual service. Daily mutual service. There is no fairness here. There is no division of labor. 
They don't have defined roles and responsibility. They do not argue, argue over turf issues. Each actively looks for opportunities to serve and nurture their spouse. And this creates a dance of competence. This dance of competence is so important. It is so critically important. I'll come back to it in a minute. Really important. Exceptional couples view service as an end in itself. To be of service is to be who they are. It is intrinsic to their abilities to grow and change, especially those areas about themselves that are hardest to change. And as a result, they receive more expression of gratitude than most couples. Here's the principle. Who dusts the table? Whomever bumps into it first. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't areas of responsibilities. Every couple has to have them. But service crosses over easily. Doesn't stop, oh, well, you know, I'm not cleaning the table, something my wife does. Or my wife, oh, I'm not going to do the taxes, something he does. Who does the table? Whoever bumps into it first. Exceptional rapport. Exceptional couples are equal partners in their capacity for emotional expression and verbal expression. So remember I've talk, told you about this dance of competence. Exceptional couples learn to become more and more competent in every aspect of their lives that please their spouse. And so perhaps a guy is really having a hard time expressing himself emotionally, he learns. In the age of YouTube, no one has an excuse. He learns. So maybe he was absolutely incompetent in expressing himself. He becomes a bit more competent. Well, that's 100%. It's great. Keep working on it. A wife has a problem expressing herself verbally. She learns. She applies herself. They are willing to be challenged and to grow. That's par for the game. They have learned to overcome their basic gender and personality difference. They are less interested in knowing who's supposed to do what, who's on first, and more interested in being able to serve, being able to love, and being able to, do, to help each other grow. Again, who dusts the table, whomever bumps into it first. I can't emphasize this enough. Exceptional negotiation. <clears throat> this is such a key principle. In exceptional relationships, all needs are respected and met. All needs are respected and met even when a spouse's need is not completely understood. It's never a question of whether your need is going to be met. 
that's never part of the negotiation. So exceptional couples are not about compromise. That a spouse's need will be met is never called into question. What happens when your need is never called into question? How do you feel knowing that no matter what you need, your need is never called into question, never doubted? The only topic of debate is what is the most efficient, respectful means by which the spouse's need will be met. That's it. When, how, to what degree? Gratitude. In exceptional marriages, every service, no matter how common or simple, is viewed as an active expression of love to be noted and appreciated. This is because there are no real expectations about the chores one's mate has to do to keep up their end. If you expect someone to do something, you start to take them for granted. Exceptional couples fight against that by never, never expecting that. Why? Because who does the table? The first to bumps into it. To bump into it, sorry. As a result, when the table has been swiped clean, you're grateful. This is absolutely essential for gratitude to flourish. Exceptional couples tend to say thank you for silly or common things for which most conventional couples would never think of voicing appreciation. Exceptional joy. Part of the exceptional couple's strength is their ability to play and be joyful together. That's a result of everything else we've seen so far. They look for new interests to share and work to share their interests together. They know which areas of their spouse's life are acceptable teasing material and which are not and they make time to be together, a lot of time to be together. Work at being present to each other. And actively seek to ease each other's burdens. Nothing that I'm telling you and everything that I'm presenting so far, everything I'm presenting so far could have been titled civic duty. There's nothing exceptional in anything that is being done here. This is not heroic virtues, guys. This is not heroic virtues. The fundamental difference, I'll reiterate the point, between exceptional couples and conventional couples is their focus. What is the most important thing for them. In conventional couples, it is the things they own and the things they do. In exceptional couples, it is who they are and who they want to be. The fundamental difference between these couples, between 
having and being. Exceptional sexuality. So one thing that I wanted to mention before I dive a little bit into this topic is that intimacy in an exceptional couple is not limited to sexuality. Intimacy is being connected emotionally, intellectually, psychologically, knowing how your spouse feels, what interests them, what they want, and being able to enjoy things with them. Intimacy is much broader than sexuality. But sexuality obviously plays an important role. Now, exceptional couples have developed a truly spiritual, life-giving sexuality. What, what do we mean by that? Watch this line. They view sex as something they are. What does that mean? It's complicated. Every quality developed thus far is practice in lovemaking. So there are two types of lovemaking out here in this world. There is one where I want to be satisfied. I, I love my, my, my wife, but nevertheless, I want to be satisfied. I want to have the sexual satisfaction. And the purposes of lovemaking is for me to be sexually satisfied. And the other one is where I want my wife, first and foremost, to be satisfied. Where's my focus? I don't lose sight or track of who I am and who I want to be during lovemaking, but it becomes an expression of all those things. So it's a difference between a sexuality, which is, I would say, purely physical, and one which is attentive, which is caring, which is loving. It's a difference between sexuality as just an act of the body and sexuality as the prayer of the body. Love making is a total self gift. You give yourself to the other for the purpose of satisfying the other. It is a symbol and expression about all that is good in their relationship. That moment when they come together is sort of the summit and the foundation of everything that is good in their relationship. And that's what he means by when he says they view sex as something that they are. It's a full expression of who they are. So their sex life is a reflection of their marriage as a whole, and they draw strength from their union to deal with the stress of things less fascinating than their marriage. You can hear people talk about marriage in a variety of ways. I wonder how many times you've met someone who said, man, marriage is fascinating. So when you look at the marital principles that I just mentioned the marital imperative exceptional fidelity loving service rapport negotiations gratitude joy and sexuality you can map onto those virtues and what's really interesting is that the way they map 
is that the marital imperative is really at the level of the faith of a covenant. But pretty much everything else is of the order of justice. Fidelity, service, rapport, negotiation, gratitude, sexuality, they're all of the order of justice. How is sexuality the order of justice? Because it is giving to the other what is owed. Your spouse deserves your sexual attention. So, most of these virtues, for the most part, are natural virtues. They're not supernatural, which is why a happy marriage is a just, natural marriage. All right. So, it is 9 o'clock, and I just covered the sort of conversation about what an exceptional marriage is. I have probably another half an hour to go discussing these exceptional marriages. So I will do that in a separate uh, talk that I'll add as an addendum because I don't think I have time to go over all the details right now. Top two. My, my daughter never makes things easy. Top two. Hmm. Let me see if I can tell you a little bit more. Okay. So, marital imperative. Those are the sort of questions you need to ask yourself. What must I do in my marriage to be a better example of the positive characteristics and virtues that I hold dear? And they are both pursuing that competence in those areas that were previously uninterested in or untalented. So it is about defining your imperative and at the same time, figuring out ways to improve in those areas that you know very little about or you want to become more talented about. So what I will say is this, this dance of competency is so critically important to become competent in every aspect of your marital life is extremely important. And I'll, I'll, I think I'll close with this. And I will send out a note to show you where you can find the rest of this conversation if you're interested to see the details. But in a shipwrecked marriage, I'll give you this example. In a shipwrecked marriage, if there is a light bulb to be changed inside the house, the wife would die before she would change that light bulb because if she assumes that this is the work of her husband, he has to do it. But she would nag him to death about it. In a conventional marriage, the wife eventually will change a light bulb, but she will resent him for it for the rest of her life, or at least until the end of the day. In a, in a uh, partnership marriage, which is the lower end of the exceptional marriage, the wife bumps into the light bulb that needs to be changed and changes it without even thinking. And in a pure spiritual marriage, which is like 4% of all marriages, it's the top of the food chain of marriages. The wife will change the light bulb and rewire the house to code before her husband comes home. In a shipwreck marriage, a husband will consider spending time with the children to give his wife a break as babysitting. And he can't wait to get back on the couch and be done with it. In a conventional marriage, the husband will know that he has to spend time with the kids, but two or three hours into the day, he'll get bored, send the kids to the basement, 
and go do more important things. In a partnership marriage, the husband will joyfully spend the whole day playing with the kids. And in a spiritual partnership marriage, the husband will beg his wife to leave the house so he can spend time with the kids. And by the time she comes back home, the house is spick and span. That's the dance of competence I'm talking about. Being competent in each other's business. What happens when you are competent in this fashion? Number one, arguments around communication go down because both of you know how difficult it is or how easy it is to do something. Number two, um, the intimacy grows because there's so much more to share between the couples. And number three, the respect and gratitude goes up. Competence is at the heart of a good marriage. Let me um, end with this example. I'm going to give you an example, a real example. So you can see this is not the work of the elite. It is not something that only people who are Oh, great. Who are, um, is that it? Now I'm still de de describing what those marriages are. I just want to give you an example. Here we go. I want to give you this example. Yes. All right. How many of you are familiar with Kenny and Bobby McCoggy? I'm hoping I'm saying the name right. Probably not a lot of you because they're from a few years back. But Kenny and Bobby came from a middle class, um, I think, uh, Protestant family. Uh, and uh, they had one daughter, which you see sitting here in the arms of her mom. And then when uh, Bobby became pregnant a second time, they found out that she was pregnant with seven children, naturally. Okay. As a result, like I said, they have, they were an average working class with a strong connection to their community and church fundamentally conventional marriage but then uh they became um, parents to their daughter michaela and the famous mccoggy septuplets seven kids so while his wife was bedridden to her, to her pregnancy kenny was forced to challenge his competencies he has no choice he had to step up to the plate and take care of the things that his wife was taking care of. And as a result of that, he developed an exceptional gratitude towards his wife. Those are not people reading deep books and writing dissertations. He had a choice. He could have become very resentful and upset 
Instead, he became grateful for what his wife was doing. They held to their marital imperative. How did they get their marital imperative? After hours and hours of thinking and hiring a specialist to help them define it? No, it came from a line of a song they sang to each other at their wedding. Here it is. And the world shall know that we are a household of faith. That was their marital imperative from a song at their wedding. Uh, here they are. Um, this is Michaela with her husband and son. And here are the sex, the sex of the seven of them. Two have cerebral palsy. And I think there's a more uh, updated um, a picture where two of them are engaged. And one of the daughters said that when the seven of them get together, they're, they're best friends. So here is a marriage that radiated joy and love, are an example to their community, and truthfully were um, fruitful because the husband and the wife had a marital imperative and they did everything they can to live by it. So the same can be true about you because every particle of every human being, body and soul, cries out to be made whole by love, by being loved by others, by loving others and by love itself. What better opportunity to pursue this most natural of callings than the opportunity presented by your marriage, which is nothing if it is not a school of love in every sense of that phrase. It is never too late to start. It's never too late to return to the true essence of your marriage. And if you're not married, then begin by reflecting on your personal, moral, and spiritual imperative. Who are you and who do you want to be at the end of your life? Thank you. Anansi, do we have time for questions or? Yeah, we can do that. So what we want to do, as we do usually, we'll close. So those of you who need to be on your way, may God be with you. And those of you who'd like to stay for some Q&A, we can do that right after. So why don't you please stand up for a closing with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord Jesus, we want to thank you and praise you and give you glory for your love for us. We want to thank you, Lord, for all the graces that you give us every day of our lives. We want to thank you for your consolation, your presence, your constant guidance, and the gift of your Holy Spirit. And lastly, for this period of Lent, during which we can truly focus on becoming who you want us to be. We ask you, Lord, to give us your grace and your strength to continue on this journey and to be always and ever ready to love, to serve, and to humble ourselves in mutual service. We ask this through the intercession of Our Lady, Mary most holy as we pray. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, 
and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. I ask those of you who would like to be on your way, please do so silently, and we're going to straight get into questions right away. And again, uh, if you're interested in these books, uh, please see my wife, um, and then you can pick up one for, for 10 bucks. Thank you. 15 minutes for question. All right. Here we go. And then uh, for those of you who are online, uh, please simply ask your questions in the chat. Thank you. Questions? <clears throat> yes. I'm not sure if you work with uh, first responders, with the police officers, firefighters. I'm becoming a I'm trying to become a firefighter. Can what I, advice have you given them, especially being Catholic and I'll be away from the health from my strengthening? What advice have you given them for a successful marriage, especially when the wife has to deal with everything logged on? What a wonderful question. Thank you so much. And first and foremost, thank you for your services. Uh, I don't think uh, much of us who do not do that appreciate what you guys do as much as we should. So thank you. Um, it's a great question. Let me reiterate that question. If you are a firefighter, or first responder, or police, or someone who is called to be out of the house at times for extended period of times, let's say two weeks or so, while your wife is at home uh, taking care of everything else, how do you manage a marriage in a situation like this one? What are you supposed to do? Am I paraphrasing your question the right way? Okay. All right. That actually brings up a very interesting point, which is that in exceptional marriages, they tend to put a limit on career. Most exceptional couples put a limit on career. If that career, whatever it may be, is not serving their marital imperative, things need to change. So in your case, or in the case of anyone who is in, this, in, a, in serving in these situations, if you and your wife are on board 100% and she can understand and appreciate all your sacrifices and she feels lifted up by them and she feels connected to you and your intimacy and your competence is not suffering, you're doing the right thing. If on the other hand, things are breaking down or your wife feeling, is feeling isolated or she's not heard or she doesn't feel connected to you as much as she should, it needs to be revisited. And what I'm saying to you, I say to every other profession because you have also people who are in other professions and they feel that they need to be there, that they need to do what they do. It's an 80 hour shift, whatever, whatever the case may be. And then the family is paying the price. The intimacy is paying the price. The rapport is paying the price. The joy is paying the price. In which case, you're basically falling into conventional marriage. I don't know how else to say it, but career is just one thing you do. It is not who you are. Marriage is what's going to help you to become who you are. Have I answered your question? Thank you. 
Anyone else? Yes. Um, yeah, what, what did you say? As a senior person? I, single. Okay, thank you. So let's deal with the first question, which is, what if you have a situation with one of the spouses is doing everything they can to step up to that exceptional marriage imperative while the other isn't? Okay. So... I think there is a difference between couples where both husband and wife have agreed to a marital imperative, have their own spiritual and moral imperative, and they're working on it. You will almost in no case find couples who are able to be perfect across the board. There's going to be difficulty. I skipped a whole bunch of slides because I couldn't get to them, right? But in exceptional marriage, when there is an argument, and there are arguments, the argument is lived as a deep muscle massage. It's uncomfortable and it's hard, but after it's done, it leaves the marriage more flexible and relaxed. You're with me? Okay, so I'm not saying it's perfect, you know, it's rosy and perfect and there are no arguments, there are. But in cases where both of them are committed, then all is well. They need to work at it. What you're addressing now is a situation where one is committed and the other isn't. Okay. In that situation, the first question that has to be asked is, when that person was committed, what, was that person committed before the marriage? Or has that person become committed after? If that person was committed before the marriage, why did this person marry that person? They shouldn't have in the first place. But if they're com they became committed after the marriage, well, they need to be patient because the other spouse that was not part of the contract when they got married. You're with me? Okay. And lastly, it is key, something that is absolutely key, that uh, there is a need for either um, therapy or to go on different marital encounters like Rotovai and other organizations that help marriages to sort of grow. But to think that you're never gonna need help by anybody is also a little bit, um, I would say, pretentious. Okay? Being humble and recognizing I need help, I need to go talk to somebody to basically bounce idea and give me some perspective and help me find a better way is, is par for the course. And if the situation is such that this person really doesn't want to, well, then that's going to be a really tough ride. All right, that's the first question. The second was, could you reiterate the second question, please? Mm. So, as far as watching this, is going to be on YouTube, so you're going to be in luck. All right. Now, 
Okay. In all seriousness, though, what is key is to make sure that whomever you're talking to is trying to understand who they really want to be. If they're taken by the fast lane and they want to be successful, and I'll talk about is making money and having their careers and all of that, you, you're... Look, I'm not going to give you advice, but I, what I would say is that doesn't bode well, right? So yes, you, you have to be able to help someone think through what really, what does it really mean to be married? And uh, whether you pick up the book or you watch the stock or other sources, that conversation has to happen. It's absolutely essential. I would agree with you. Yes. Yes. Great question. So the question is, is it good for husbands and wives to have different interests or they should have always interest in common? Okay. As far as the question to this, sorry, the answer to this question and to every other question like it is as follows. If the separate interest is helping rapport, communication, intimacy, sexuality, joy, sense of growing together, wonderful. If they're not, they should be dropped. How do you know? Ask your spouse. Does that make sense? Yeah. There isn't, you see, we all, in a sense, are looking for a hard and fast rule in morality, generally. We want black and white answers. We would love to have black and white answers in morality. In, on theology, absolutely, we have black and white answers. Morality, it's a prudential judgment. But the best way to think about it is, hey, honey, I want to take on crochet, the husband says. He's interested in crochet. Why not interested in crochet? That could be a conversation. Actually, you're laughing, but I personally find crochet very fascinating because, uh, well, as a side note, if you try to model crochet using um, math, it's insanely complicated, which is why I find it interesting. But that's me. All right. Okay. I know. Weird notes set aside. Let's keep going. The point is... Um, a conversation has to happen. And then I think in most instances, you will find that the wife develops enough competence to appreciate what her husband is doing, but not to the same level. And he might develop enough competence to appreciate what her, husband, her wife is doing, but not necessarily to the same level. I think there's a give and take, but nothing should be decided. Nothing should be done if it is not working towards that marital imperative. That's a give. Does that make sense? Okay. Any other question? Don't, don't be shy. If you're thinking about a question, you can bet everybody else is thinking about it. That's how it usually works. Yes. Yes. 
Okay, so the question is, let me make sure I, I'm, I'm representing you properly. The question you're asking me is that, is there a healthy amount of separation between spouses or should they be spending every single moment together? Am I properly reflecting your question? Okay, first of all, practically speaking, it is almost impossible for husband and wife to spend every single moment together, right? I think it was possible during the rural area where they had a house, owned the land, and worked it together. It's less possible now. So I don't think it's a question of, so I don't think this is what you have in mind though. I think you're wondering if, let's say, would it be okay for a husband to go on a hunting party with his buddies and would it be okay for the wife to, I don't know, go on a cruise without her husband or something like that. Do separate activities. I'll reiterate the point I made earlier. In exceptional couples, and I didn't show you this, hopefully I'll record that and then you'll be able to see it. But in exceptional, in exceptional couples, the spouses would rather do something they don't like with their spouse than doing something they like without their spouse. The spouses would rather do something they don't like with their spouse rather than doing something they don't like, they like without them. Why? Because they consider that imperative to be the heart of the whole matter. And even when I do something with my wife that I don't necessarily like, it is helping me grow in exceptional rapport, in exceptional gratitude, in all these aspects that will make my, 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 my marriage deeper. This is why. So that's the general rule. As to the specifics, it's really up to every couple. Yeah? Okay. Get a question? Yeah. You spoke about finding like a sense of personal identity within the community. And I think as members of you know a lot of church groups here, especially young adult groups, what are some things that we can or should or shouldn't be doing as church groups to help foster that you know growth in personal identity and then stronger marriages? Oh, wonderful question. So what should um, you know communities when they get together do to help foster that strong a sense of stronger identity and exceptional marriages. One thing I notice, sadly, very sadly, that when couples get together or when young adults get together, when friends get together, they spend the 90% of conversations on things that don't matter. They don't know how to speak with humility about their struggles, the things that have, they're trying to grow in, and the things that matter. I think that's what needs to be fostered. Fundamentally, a sense of truth. Most people who come to groups do not bring their true self. They bring an image. And everybody's doing great. The world is in a mess, but you go to any group, everybody's doing great. Well, if everybody's doing great in every group, how come the world is a mess? We have no mechanism to allow the deep things to be discussed. To really share them, to say where we are, what we're struggling with, and to take encouragement and solace from those around us. We do not develop authentic communities. 
I think that's where it starts. Andrea? Oh, very good point. What is the difference between having a marriage where everything revolves around marriage and codependence? Now, codependence is an expression that we've encountered in shipwreck marriage where at least one flavor of it would be you have a husband who is really nutty. He's crazy. And the wife has issues she doesn't want to deal with. So instead, she focuses on trying to save him, who cannot be saved, in the hope that he will come back and take care of her problems. So they create a codependent situation between him and his problems and her and her problems, and the dynamic solves neither. That's one flavor. Okay. What is that? How is that different from an exceptional couple where everything is centered in marriage? The difference is in the dance of competence. Codependent couples do not become competent. Whereas exceptional couples do. They work at becoming as good as one another in all areas of their marriage. And then the whole, all the consequences follow. Gratitude, a sense of never being taken for granted, right? Deep satisfaction, deep joy. Whereas in a codependent couple, He's in La La Land, and she's trying everything she can to bring him back, and he barely listens to her. There is no desire on his part to grow in any kind of competence whatsoever. As an example. Does that answer your question? All right. So I think we're going to close with my daughter. You have a, a word, a final word to say? All right. Thanks guys for coming. Um, one thing I mentioned earlier, Luna did ask that everyone shows up to help volunteer at the festival this year. Uh, that was for the priest, you guys. Sorry for me. Um, we do have a festival coming up at the end of May, Moral Day weekend. Please come. Dancing in it, they'll be food. Thanks to Paulina and the great volunteers. Thanks to Paulina and so yeah, please come. It's a whole lot of hard work. Like ton of fun, uh, Moral Day weekends, and then Emily also asked me to share that. Um, one quick, there is a 40 days for life event happening on the 11th on Saturday, the 11th at Sacred Heart Church. She'll have her information, but you can spread that around. Um, for we will be meeting back here next Wednesday for talk series we will skip the following wednesday and we'll resume the last wednesday of march um and with that if you guys want to hang out and help us at table side you're more than welcome if not we'll give a great evening and and um before we finish if you are interested in following up uh please subscribe to the newsletter like i said there's going to be an addendum to this talk to cover the slides i haven't covered and I will announce that in the newsletter. So if you haven't subscribed, go to forbono.com, just subscribe.
and then you will get the news this way. Thank you. And thank you, Dad. <laughs> You're welcome. Uh, hey, the little secret is probably.